Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Onion Unlimited, the podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torridon. Today I'm joined by my mate Chris from the Two Tongues podcast. We're going to be talking about mind again. We're going to be talking about a guy called Swedenborg. And we're going to be discussing the British accent. A little jam. I like a little jam, Daniel. A little jam. <laughs> I do want to tell you, Daniel, I listened to your um, your podcast with your with your uh, oldest friend. I can't remember the guy's oh, name. Yeah, Math. Math. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Math with yeah. an F. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I listened to that. Um, and it was really, it was, it was, um, really entertaining because, uh, <laughs> obviously you, you're, you guys are a little older than me. Um, and I have a friend that I grew up with from a really young age as well. Well, the one I do the podcast with Kyle, a lot of what you were talking about just reminded me of stories, uh, growing up with, with him. When, when we first met, you were telling the story about, um, your, your dad telling you to give your friend something, to give him a toy, but to give him your best toy. <laughs> you, you were struggling with that. And it, I just, it just made me think about this um, Ghostbuster. Um, it was the Ghostbuster fire station house that I had when I was a kid. And I dragged that over to Kyle's house and uh, you put the slime in the top and it drips down through the firehouse. And uh, anyway, it was the, uh, it was the early nineties and uh, Ghostbusters were a big deal, but it, it as you were telling that story, I was just smiling and laughing of all the hijinks you get into when you're when you're young and just having a buddy to do it with. Yeah, and there's something about I don't know when when it's your oldest mate and you've got so many memories. There's always that banter there as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I was just listening back to a few of them the other day, and it's like we've got something really special. And I'd imagine you and Kyle probably have as well, haven't you? Oh, a hundred percent. Now, did did you um, remember anything differently than he did? When you guys were talking, um, a, f- a few of the uh, stories that are sort of third-hand stories that we've heard that we shared, um, yes, some t- sometimes there were sort of ways I remembered the story had been told to me, mm. and he he sort of picked it up third-hand, you know, a different way. But generally speaking, the actual memories that w- that we experienced, no, no, they're pretty yeah. pretty much the same, yeah. yeah. It's it's just it's interesting because um, there's things that Kyle and I remember differently, and uh, mm. I have a, I have a twin sister. Her 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 and I remember things differently. It's like yeah, we grew we grew up we grew up together. We shared a bedroom. We you know we lived the exact same lives, and she, her and my memories are divergent. I'll put it that way. It's just interesting, you know. Yeah, and I mean, me and Math, generally speaking, I think we tend to remember almost exactly the the, the same way that things happened. I guess that's a good segue into mind. Hmm. Mind. Yeah. So as far as mind goes, this is, this is what I was thinking about. Um, I've had some interactions with people, um, on Twitter Mm -hmm. and I, and I noticed this with, uh, Joe Rogan listening to his podcast is that he will, he will talk a lot about, um, psychedelics and a lot of things that have to do with mind and consciousness. Um, and he uses the word mind all the time. And what he means by that is brain. Uh. And and on Twitter, I'm having the same problem that you get into conversations with people when you're trying to talk about things like you and I talk, have no problem talking about. It's like, can you conceptualize God as consciousness or mind or something like that? 
And it seems like by and large, people can't separate the idea of mind from a physical body. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I get the, get the same, same thing actually by mind. I'm not, I'm not thinking of the brain. The brain to me is a physical thing. Whereas the, the mind is a spiritual thing, an abstract thing, something that's intangible. The, the way I've likened it to in the past is, you know, when you're driving a car, you've got the driver and the driver uses the steering wheel to steer the vehicle. Just as an illustration there, I think of the vehicle as the body, the brain as the steering wheel, and the mind as the driver. I like that. I mm. like that. And it's, um, you know, there's there's this kind of higher self that is basically, you know, moving your body around and directing your body, but it's using your brain to do that. Mm. But, um, mm. This idea that This idea that the brain is what produces consciousness, I've never really bought into that. Mm. See, that, that's an interesting topic, and that's exactly what it is, especially when I'm talking to atheists or materialist, rationalist type people. It, they think that the brain produces mind. Hmm. And, and what you and I are saying is something more like, and I'll, t- I'll have to be fair because Joe Rogan has said this before on the podcast many times, that there's an alternative approach to understand consciousness, at least. He won't use the word mind, but consciousness to, to mean, um, or the brain rather, uh, as a receiver of of mind, as a receiver of consciousness, rather than mm-hmm. as a producer of it. And here's what here's what trips me up, is that I'm I'm um, as you know this, but I'm uh the idealism and panpsychism are, as ideas appeal to me, and I try I try to imagine what that means. Like an idealist might say that everything is mind, so that 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 matter and energy and the laws of physics exist within mind, so mind becomes a place. It becomes a place. And it's just so strange for me trying to make mm. sense of that. Um, so I just wanted to open up the topic. What do you think? Maybe, maybe rather than place, what about the word container? Mm. I, I like that. But at the same time, I have to respect that the container is infinite. And so how do you, so how do you make sense of a container that has no boundaries? Right? It's like... You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, when I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very much going down the route these days. Um, I've mentioned it to you before of Advaitism. Yes. The idea of non, non-duality, that there, there is just one thing at the end of the day, and that one mm-hmm. thing is source or Brahman or God or let's just say mind, for example. And then everything that is, is a projection of that. So, um, you know, pure mind or pure, pure source at the end of the day doesn't really have kind of any attributes, whereas the projection, which is us and the universe and everything that seems real, does have attributes. And I think they're moving on from that. There's then probably sub-minds if that makes sense. There's the ultimate mm. mind that is projecting all, all of this in, in, into reality. And then each of us, as illusory as it is, each of us has the ability then to experience mind ourselves. And then we mm. can actually create things as well. But ultimately, behind it all, there's just this one mind that's creating everything into existence. So when you use the word project, 
I, I agree with you. I really, honestly, I, that, that makes perfect sense to me. But I can't help but imagine that what's being projected has to be projected somewhere. So we get mm. back to we get back to place again. And I guess the only way I can really make sense of that is to suggest that whatever mind is, um, is projecting within itself. So mind becomes object as well as space or place. It's really difficult to conceptualize, but that's kind of where that's kind of where I struggle. And the other thing that you bring up about sub-minds, hmm. it, remind, it reminds me of this idea of dissociation that we talked about once or twice yeah. before, when, uh, particularly when we're talking about Bernardo Castrip. So if you have a source mind, if you have a, you know... The ultimate reality, if you yes. will. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So you might, you might imagine sub-minds existing within that structure, and if there, if if we have to stick to the oneness idea that you brought up, which I 100% agree with, then you kind of have this image of a projection within because there's only one thing. Now the subminds seem to be yeah. created either, I mean, either by being created as a separate entity or um, by dissociating somehow from from the wholeness of that. A primordial universal mind because we have to stick with the oneness because that appeals yeah. to my mystic intuition and it appeals to yeah. my sort of philosophical uh, well, preferences. Well, th- th- this is why I think the, the, the kind of fragmentation that gives you sub-minds, you know, my mind, your mind, that seems separate to the ultimate mind, I think that is first of all that's an illusion i think if you were if you were in my body so to speak i don't think you'd feel any different than you mm. do now yes i yes. think i think our brain and our body limits or, or affects our our personal experiences but i think the the ultimate driver behind it all is the same across the board it's it's like you've said before about uh, fractalism isn't it where mm. Yes. The ultimate, you've got the ultimate mind. If that fragments, it can't be anything other than identical to the original source. So my, my mind is identical to source. If I was source, this is how I'd feel. If mm. I was to swap bodies and brains with you, I'd, I'd feel the same. I'd feel like the same person still, but I would just find that my brain, my body affects my experience. So it would be mm. slightly different, but ultimately we're the same consciousness. Mm. No, I agree with that. I a hundred percent. I had a, I'm a little bit embarrassed to bring this up, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> um, so I had an experience with dissociation not long ago hmm. and, it, and it had to do with having too much to drink. This is what I'm embarrassed to say, because listen, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't grow up doing a lot of heavy drinking. Um, I don't have a history of losing time, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's, there, there's been a couple, a couple of instances when I was younger where maybe I had a little bit of that, you know, if I was drinking heavily and, uh, maybe I lost like the, the end of the night, I was staying up late anyway, the end of the night, sort of foggy. Well, this happened to me, the, uh, maybe it was a week ago or two weeks ago where I went out with friends, um, had a little bit too much to drink, started early and I had a really rough night. And to be, if I'm being honest, I woke up uh, regretting it. I, re- I woke up regretting it, but I couldn't remember a large chunk of the evening. And that's never happened to me before. It's really um, unsettling, isn't it? it? It's tremendously unsettling. I wasn't sure how that would come across to you British, 
you drink really well, you guys, and you handle, you, you drink regularly, you handle larger quantities of alcohol. So this, this may be par for the course. I don't know, but for me, it's disturbing because, mm. because I, well, I was, it's funny because I, I don't actually drink. I, I suppose I'll have a, you know, a glass of wine or, a, mm-hmm. you know, a lager or something with a curry, but I've never been a drinker. No, I'm with you. And the older I get, the 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 less I enjoy the after See, effect. Can I? Um, yeah. I don't want to sort of cut across you there, but uh, you just saying about this this sort of unsettling experience of not existing for a period of time, isn't it? There was a situation that I experienced. So when I was uh, when I was a child, um, I've talked about it in my podcast before. When I was around about the age of eleven. I actually suffered abuse at school by a teacher that abused mm-hmm. me at school. And uh, the, the, the long and short of it is I basically, at the age of 11, had a massive mental breakdown um, mm-hmm. just at the age of 11. You know, that, that's quite a big thing. And I, uh, I was under a, a psychiatrist who uh, back back in those days, the uh, psychiatry was a bit weird. Uh, they used to make you do some really weird exercises, like sort of drawing pictures of your dreams and all this sort of thing to try and ascertain, you know, sort of things from your childhood and all that kind of right weird stuff, you know. But um, it didn't work. It didn't work. So um, I was put... Uh, under a doctor who said, uh, I'm going to give you uh, medication. And basically they were like these kind of tranquilizers, I suppose, that just basically stopped me from overthinking things, you mm. know, just sort of numb me a bit. Mm. But I've got the weirdest thing that happened to me. I remember being 11 and I remember being 13, but I don't remember the in-between bit. What? Um, what? I, I know. I woke up one morning. I woke up and I felt really disoriented. And I said to my mum, "How old am I?" And she said, "Thirteen." And I, what? Thirteen? I thought I was eleven. And there's like this. There's this massive gap of two years where I, I don't remember a thing. My mind went offline for a period of time to deal with the trauma. But you were still obviously living every day of your life, you know, yeah. having your breakfast, going to school. Well, I wasn't going to school because I was so ill at the time, but I was, yeah, presumably, you know, I was getting up and eating and drinking and going back to sleep. And all that. But I can't remember. I think I remember 11, I remember 13, and there's this massive gap in the middle. Even today, that's unsettling. It sort of feels a little bit like I've got a big chunk missing from somewhere. What? That's astonishing, Daniel. When you think about that, right? When you think about that now, what 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 kind of feelings does that make you have? Like, what do you think when you try to imagine that dark hole of a year of your life that's missing? It, it just feels unsettling. I think similar to what you were just saying there. If you know, if you've drunk a bit too much, and you basically your brain goes or your mind even goes offline, doesn't it? And then it comes back on, and it just feels like it feels like the world carried on, and I wasn't part of it. <laughs> For a yes. period of time. Yeah, that is a strange thing. So I was mm. gonna tell you, and yours your example is so much more dramatic. So this isn't gonna this isn't gonna fall quite the same way, but <laughs> I, I remember sitting down for lunch, kind of a late lunch. We went to we went to get sushi. We'd already had something to drink. So we were mm. like, let's get some food in our bodies. That'll be a good idea. So we went, we got sushi, we start eating. I remember the appetizer. 
mm-hmm. at some point, at some point we ordered sake. I don't remember that. The next thing I remember is waking up uh, in the middle of the night sick. So I lost four hours or five hours of time. And exactly like you just explained, mm. it's like my, my consciousness, my memory jumped from appetizers to throwing up yeah. Yeah. at two o'clock yeah. in the morning. There's yeah. nothing in between. And it's been a week or two since, and none of those memories have come back. It, they're, they're gone. It's almost like the, the fractal mind, the fragmented mind, no, the, let's say, call it a sub-mind. It's almost like that goes offline for a period of time, isn't mm. it? Yes. You know, pres- presumably the ultimate mind is still carrying on, you know, and yes. reality continues, doesn't it, you know? And other people haven't missed that. That chunk, right? Yes. But this body, this brain, <laughs> it's almost like for a period of time the mind wasn't connected to this body and this brain. Because I, I do think I do think the brain stores memories. You know, the brain is like a storage system that will actually store the the memories of this actual body. And if the mind is offline, I suppose it's almost like if the mind is offline, those memories are not being written to the brain, are they? So there's no way to access what happened during that period of time. Does that's, that make that's, sense? Yep. No, that's exactly what I imagine happened. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's so disturbing. You tell me if, you, this, if this sounds right to you. Um, this is something I've been toying with for a while, but it seems like to me that our experience of the world is mm. obviously through our conscious experience and our memories of our conscious experiences. Yep. So, so there isn't, at least for us individually, there isn't a difference between when the cosmos was created and when we became conscious, when we came online. And there isn't a difference between when we die, let's say, when we go offline and the end of the world. That's Armageddon. That's, that's Armageddon as far as we're concerned. We, that's why there's a fear of death in general. It seems to me that our conscious experience is deep down, it's synonymous with the creation and destruction of everything because mm. all we know is our consciousness. And if it disappears, the world is gone. And that's a terrifying thought. And that's what happened to me. I, I was gone for, for, for five hours. The world was gone. You know, imagine those people that are in comas for a long time and come to. Oh, yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. You imagine waking up and sort of thinking it's still 1970. <laughs> That must be awful. 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 That's a horror movie, Daniel. That's a horror movie. Yeah. Why the, uh, I'd have thought you just, just triggered a, um, a thought there. Um, you know, like we're having these, these conscious experiences now, you know, all these memories being made and what have you. At the point that you, at the point that you die, that last thought that you have, before you die, does that last thought just vanish, or does that last thought feel like it continues forever? That very last moment, just just before the lights go out. I mean, does it go from that to nothing? Or let me give you a possibility of uh, you know how they say when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. Hmm. I don't know if that's the truth, but I've heard it many times that you you see flashes of memories going from your earliest to your latest, that you kind of relive your life in the moments of your death. Um, I don't know if that's true, 
my, my thought yeah. is, is that last moment? So imagine this, imagine it's a fractal moment. I live my life. I die in my last moment of death. I relive my life. That includes the moment of my death mm. where I relive my life. It just goes and goes and goes. Then it mirrors the fractal nature of reality. It's a hippie idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's like um, I've often said uh, with re- reincarnation, if reincarnation is true, knowing my luck, I'd come back as me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. So that's, that's mind. I think mind is outside of the brain and... I think when we, I think when we do die, you know, the consciousness just continues. I think that's what happened. I agree. You know, the body and brain go offline, but I think you just realise that you are the ultimate, and then at some point you reincarnate back into another body. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I might resist the idea of having of retaining memories um, when when you're reborn. It seems to me that the spirit of life, the force of life, whatever that is. It follows the same rules of nature everything else does, meaning that it can't be created or destroyed. So there's no beginning or end to conscious experience. Mm. And there really, is, there really isn't a distinction between any forms of consciousness, um, which goes back to that question of mind that we started with. And, and the reason why I think you have to make a distinction between mind and brain is if you think about other living creatures that don't have brains. It's a really easy, it's a really easy example. You talk about a flower or you talk about a, you know, a, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument could be made that it has mind, that it has experience, but it doesn't have a brain. So how far do we have to go to discredit the idea that mind and brain are somehow dependent upon one another? I, I don't think mind is dependent on brain. Um, I think for I think for humans and animals, I think the brain is just the way that the mind controls the body. I think that's it. Mm. So I think I think it's completely conceivable that a flower, for example, that <laughs> probably doesn't even need a brain. Right. You know? Right. Isn't that um, interesting? What does that mean? Then you know, it doesn't have to walk or go anywhere, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. I would imagine. I would imagine. Prob- I mean, I've, I've often thought that. Everything has consciousness at some at some level. It might not be our level of consciousness. You know, a cabbage has probably got consciousness, but it probably doesn't think the way that we do. But I would right. imagine a cabbage has experiences. I have no doubt. That I have no doubt. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this before, but there's um, been a couple things I've heard along those lines. One of them is that if um, – certain bug beetle, I don't know what it is. If a certain, a certain bug um, shows up in a forest and it's, it's a predator for a particular tree. It's going to eat and damage this particular tree that when they, when the uh, bugs start to eat the tree, that there are signals that get sent to the trees in the vicinity through the mycelial network of, of um, you know, uh, fungus in the earth and the roots and all that. It will communicate to the forest and the other trees will change their chemical structure to become bitter to the plant, to the bugs. So they literally will communicate with each other. How is it? I mean, how could we say that they're not having an experience of being eaten if they're warning the other trees? I've heard that referred to as the wood wide web. Yes, 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 yes. So they must be having experiences and they have no brain. Just the fact that, you know, if you wire a plant up to a, uh, 
to the device and cause it stress, you know, you, you will detect something on the device if you're stressing the plant out, you know, if you're pulling leaves off it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and if you watch a time those awesome time-lapse videos of plants you can watch you can watch the flower following the sun right it doesn't have eyes how is it seeing the sun how does it know where to move and yet it knows certainly it's having an experience of some kind you know i agree there's there's mind behind everything which comes back to your uh you mentioned about panpsychism didn't you all is mind right and there is mind in in all i think Yep. So I, I think we, I think ultimately we have to either ch- choose, and I'm really struggling to choose whether mind exists within all things, or whether, or whether all things are mind. And psychism um, allows for a material universe. It just says mm-hmm. that material universe is always connected to consciousness. It's it, all all objects have it. Then there's the idealism side of things, which says. Well, there may not be matter at all. Matter may just be a thing existing in mind, and in in some degree, it's a hallucination. I go along that that route. So yeah. you prefer the idealism route? I think I think I'm leaning that way. Yeah, I think uh, I, I don't think anything is real. I think you know, real as in tangible, and and you know, it's. Um, I think everything is just a. Ultimately, it's all a dream. I think it's a dream within the mind, you know, the ultimate mind. So this this actually sets up the Swedenborg conversation really well. Swedenborg. Swedenborg? Swedenborg. So Swedenborg. So Swedenborg, I did a podcast on um, Hmm. Swedenborg is a mystic. uh, I want to say. Uh, yeah, in fact, I know uh, from from Sweden, right? Swedenborg. Um, He he was knighted. Uh, by the monarchy uh, during his time. I think he lived in the 1600s. He was a scientist and was w- well-respected, but he was a very mystical guy and said some very strange things. And one of the things he said I wanted to ask you about, because it's mm. I haven't really had the chance to think about it deeply, and so I think maybe we can do some thinking together on this. So Swedenborg said, well, let me... Let me give you a little bit of, a little bit more background. I had read Sir Humphrey Davy's book called Constellations in Travel before I read Swedenborg. And if you don't know Sir Humphrey Davy um, as a Brit, you should. But he, um, he, he was a scientist. Also, uh, he was knighted, Sir Humphrey Davy, obviously, a very well-respected scientist. And when he died, he wrote a book on his deathbed that is the craziest little book you've ever read in your life, where he claims to have gone to outer space. Um, with the help of a spirit and was taken around to the planets and shown the supernatural creatures that exist on the planets and the stars and space. And it's very, very strange. Um, There's a lot of similarities between Sir Humphrey Davy and Emanuel Swedenborg. They were both knighted. They were both credible academics. They both went very mystical in, in their life. And they both talk about supernatural beings existing in outer space. This is not this is not a heavenly realm. This is not another dimension. This is in the heavens that we can see with in our the, naked eye. Mm-hmm. So here's what Swedenborg said that I want to ask you about. He said that one of the things he was shown is that in the sun you have a representation of God. I don't really know how to say this, so I'm just going to stumble through it. He says that imagine that 
there's a supernatural realm that's just as much a part of the physical here and now that's always behind the scenes, always um, potent and effective in the world, but invisible to us. It's like the other half of the world that we never see. It's the dark side of the moon. And in that supernatural non-being realm, whatever that is, that's where God exists. That's where, um, that's really the, the realm of, of fundamental reality. And on the other side of that coin is, is the material cosmos, you and I and the stars and the planets and everything else. So on one half of the coin, you have God. On the other side, you have material reality, but they're one thing. And Swedenborg says that the sun is a sort of a pathway or a sort of a transformation vector. I, I'm using words I don't even understand right now, so I'm trying to explain. So imagine that God, God's love, this is, this is what he says. By that, he means the creative, generative force of life and um, energy, you know, whatever is needed to make consciousness and life a, a, a possibility, whatever is needed to make material reality a possibility. It flows through from the spiritual world yep. into this world, the world of being. The portal between them is is the sun. Okay. So the heat and light, the electromagnetic energy and the force of gravity and all that stuff that comes out of the sun starts off as God on the other side. It passes from non-being into being through a star. So a star is like a portal to the other world, to, to the world of God, the realm of God, our other side. So before I say anything more, what do you think of this? That immediately made me think of a scripture. Ooh, I'm interested. Psalm 36, verse 9, referring to God, that says, For with you is the source of life. By light from you, we can see light. The hair standing up my arms. Ooh. That's good, man. That is good. I've, I've, often, I've often thought that there is actually a connection between God and light. Light is a very um, unexplainable thing, isn't it? It sure is. And you know, everything physical depends on, uh, depends on light. Light is directly related to time. Yes. And that would make an awful lot of sense if the, what we perceive as the, as the sun or indeed other stars. So I, I want to talk to you more about light, but before I do, I want to mention one other thing that might uh, make this more magical for you, <laughs> hopefully. So one of the things to note is that according to our best theories in physics, the universe began in a singularity that we call the Big Bang. And the, in, the energy from that singularity did one thing first. It, it, it seemed to have created space-time, at least something like that, and then immediately starts forming stars. That's what it does. Yep. So the Big Bang creates stars, then the, the stars create everything else. And so that's one thing. The other thing to remember is that when a star dies, it turns into a black hole. Yes, and a black hole is a singularity, just like the Big Bang, just like the thing that started it all. That's where it ends in a singularity. And up until recently, we knew that the um, uh, that the black holes would um, suck everything in, including light, by the way, 
The only thing that light can't escape, it sucks everything in because of its tremendous gravity and there's no escape. Nothing ever comes back out of a black hole. Then an article came out not all that long ago. And if I could share my screen, I will pull this up for you. This one, this one's from um, Harvard and it says, we've never seen anything like this before. Black hole spews out material years after shredding a star. So this is the first time that we have seen some reversal in how a black hole works. It seems to have, it seems to be doing something, at least in this one instance, completely contrary to what it should do. But here we have evidence of a star that is spewing forth into being, into this dimension, into the space and time that we see around us, matter and energy. It's not just sucking it in. Now it's actually been, been seen spewing it out, which nobody ever thought was possible before. So it makes you wonder what's on the other side of the event horizon. We don't, we don't know. Might be a mirror universe of, of sorts. It, it could be a mirror universe or it could be exactly what Swedenborg said it was. It God. Could, the, the other side of that portal could be God. Yeah. Right. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means. Just, just as you were saying that, there's so many different scriptures that just pop to mind there. Like there is a scripture in James 1 verse 17 that refers to God as being the father of the celestial lights. That's, mm. a, that's an interesting one. And yes. then, um, you know, light itself, uh, it's, it's been sort of postulated in the past that there is some kind of medium through which light travels. Because, you know, light is, it, it can be seen as a particle, it can also be seen as a wave, and waves, generally speaking, travel through something, don't they? Mm. But it's certainly not, it, it's, it's not air that it travels through, because, you know, the vacuum of space, you've still got light travelling through it. So it's always been a bit of a mystery. They, they sort of came up with this idea at one point that there was an ether. The luminiferous ether, yeah. yeah. There's actually a... <laughs> There's actually a scripture in uh, Job. So if you remember the uh, the story of Job, you know, where um, J- Job is sort of afflicted with all, all these uh, all these pains and what have you, and um, he, he starts getting a little bit uh, moany about it and claiming that he's, you know, he's a righteous man and he shouldn't be going through all this hassle. And... Uh, uh, at the end of uh, the end of Job, God actually speaks to him and says, "You know, I'm going to put you in your place. You know, you're not so clever as you think you are." And he starts telling him all sorts of things about creation, you know, di- different animals and sort of things like that. But he actually, in Job uh, 38, he actually discusses light. And in verse 24, God says to Job, "Where now is the way by which the light distributes itself?" Interesting. <laughs> so he asked, He actually asks Job in that verse, you know, how does light travel? There's lots of interesting things about light. I did a, at least one episode. I think it was called, what's the deal with light? It was talking about a lot of the same things that you brought up because, well, light is more than light, right? Light is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's the yeah. visible, right? The visible side of the spectrum, but it's larger than that includes, you know, uh, x-rays and gamma rays and, you know, all these various types of things. It's basically the energy that permeates the universe. It's not just what you mm-hmm. can see, but it's also that. Um, and it's, it's tied to 
the fundamental physics of reality, like you already pointed out, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That seems to be a limit to physics. Yeah, you see, if, if you were to sort of get the, the closer you get to the speed of light, effectively, if, if you could reach the speed of light, you would actually become a spiritual spirit being, effectively. You wouldn't have a body anymore. Right. That's right. That's yeah, and then there's also the idea that the observable universe is only like what what we like the limits of our knowledge are only I mean the upper limits of our knowledge are what we what we can see in terms of how far away can we still detect light, you know? Mm-hmm. So even not only does light show the upper limit of um what's possible in physics because like you said it's connected it's connected even to time like time slows down as you approach the speed of light but it also is the upper limit of our knowledge of the cosmos we can only see as far as we can detect light it's very strange yeah and if and it, if um if time slows down as you approach the speed of light that would suggest that if you did reach the speed of light not only would you be uh pure mind You'd also have no concept of time. Right. You would be non temporal. You'd be non temporal, yeah. You'd be eternal. Like like God is said to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then there's there's all kinds of religious references to light, you know, not only um the ones that you brought up from from the Bible, which are tremendous, but also the fact that solar deities have always been, since the beginning of time, mm. high gods. You know, Amun-Ra in ancient Egypt, Sol yeah. in in, uh, in the Roman Empire, um, and and on and on. Yeah, the, the, the sun itself has always been a focal point of those, hasn't it? I mean, um, I've got, I've got a friend actually that I'm going to be seeing him later today. I might just run this by him. He's always talking about how the God of the Bible is, you know, Yahweh is actually the sun, um, the actual physical sun. Sure. You can look at, we may have talked about this before, I think we did, but you can look at the prayers to Aten, which which mm-hmm. was that um, Akhenaten Pharaoh in Egypt who said, um, you know what, there's only one God, it's the sun, we're not going to worship any of the other gods anymore. And he was... Um, hated for that, but he did do that, you know, for, for a period of time. And he, in his prayers and images that you see um, directed at the sun, they sound like Christian prayers. Mm. They, they, there's, they sound like a monotheistic prayer, and they were. A mono, you know, uh, Akhenaten brought a monotheistic religion to ancient Egypt, um, and there's some connections between Akhenaten and Judeo-Christian tradition for sure. There's a scripture in Malachi that talks about God. God says, uh, to you who are in fear of my name, the sun, that's S-U-N, the sun Mm. of righteousness will certainly shine forth with healing in its wings. That that little thought of the sun of righteousness uh, shining forth with healing in its wings. Now, you know, I'm uh, an ex-Jehovah's Witness. I used to be a Jehovah's Witness. Right. If you trace Jehovah's Witnesses back, they go all the way back to um, what were known as the Bible students. A guy called Russell, Charles Taze Russell, that started started it off. And he produced a series of books. This is way back in the um, 1800s. And uh, I'm just going to see if I can pull up this cover of the book. So this this is supposedly a Christian, a Christian guy. These are the books <laughs> that he wrote. 
called the divine plan of the ages that was that was the first one they were called the studies in the scriptures can you see the um yes can you see the emblem on the front it, wings of Ra. okay you know what that looks like to me um there's another there's another symbol um of uh, a hora mazda which is interesting that in fact let me just bring this up really quickly is here we are this is a good one. Uh, right. Uh, here we go. So the, the idea back then was, uh, and I think they still teach this, that that scripture that talks about the son of righteousness with healing in its wings actually refers to Jesus. That's, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Interesting. Let me, let me show you this other image while we're at it. Uh, let me see. All right. Look at this guy. Ah, oh, yes, that's almost the same picture, isn't it? This is what I want to tell you that's interesting about this. This image here is a, a, the image of the god Ahura Mazda. That's the god of the Zoroastrian religion from ancient Persia, which has connections to Christianity. The Magi that came to see Jesus born, they belong to this, they belong to this religion. And Ahura Mazda was worshipped. They used to call them fire worshippers, right? Because that they would have these temples where they would build a fire, they would have an eternal flame, and they would say their prayers and do their sacrifices to the fire. Very, wow. very similar. And not and there's a connection. It's not the sun that we're looking at, but it is fire we're looking at. And that's very that's related well, as far as I'm the sun is a big fire, isn't it? Effectively. Big fire. Hmm. There's definitely there's some really um Odd crossovers with a lot of these, what they call, what they, you know, Christians would say are pagan, pagan backgrounds, you know, these uh, Egyptians and Assyrians and, you know, all these, uh, and they, they actually find their way into uh, Freemasonry as well, don't they? Yeah, that whole uh, uh, all-seeing eye thing, that's, that's the eye of Horus that goes back to ancient, mm. ancient Egypt. Anyway, yeah. I, I just really think this idea of, I never considered the idea that there might be a, a legitimate point of connection like you know that image of um michelangelo uh that michelangelo painted the sistine chapel the creation of adam where god is Mm -hmm. you know kind of holding his finger out adam is holding his finger out they're like almost touching you know in the image and it's showing the creation of adam it's like that that's a, a point between those two fingers where god touches literally touches his creation reality and i've never considered that there that might be a a reality there might be a place. I wonder if that's why a lot of the um, we've got like the Tower of Babel, mm. you know, meaning Gate of the Gods. You've got the pyramids. Mm. A lot yes. of these things were linked directly with the sun, weren't they? They were. They're they're also showing that that ascension up to a point. Right, that's mm. heaven meeting the earth. That's the point where God and man and and its cre- his creation touch. That's a beautiful image. If they could meet, if they could reach the sun, maybe they could get through to the gods. It's interesting to imagine mm. that that a star might be a place where God and its creation touch, and and we can say we can say all day long that the energy from the sun is responsible for not only the formation of our solar system, but also all of biological life that exists. Everything yeah. is is dependent on the sun and so even, even down to those little flowers that follow the sun <laughs> even down to the flowers man <laughs> god so i just wonder and and not, on top of that like we know this energy comes from the sun you can say look hydrogen turns into helium and it lets off energy this is what we're seeing it's nothing more than that but is it is it you know and then you, you combine that fact with the, the fact that suns turn into black holes 
and that black holes can not only not only absorb all of reality, including light, but can also spew it forth to create new suns. I, I just wonder if there's some reality to this, and it's f- kind of freaking me out, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think Look, we're touching. I, th- I think I think as soon as you start getting into light and black holes and wormholes and all those sort of things, I think you literally are knocking on the door of a spiritual realm. Yes. I think this is why, you know, um, the the scientists are doing sort of all these work with the, you know, uh, Aldrin colliders and all this sort of thing. Mm. They're very, very, very close on the edge there, I think. There's a huge possibility for things to go wrong there. Oh, yeah. 100%. So um, that's Swedenborg. That's that's Swedenborg, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that I have been thinking about recently is, I, I told you before, but I've got two young girls, and, and my mm-hmm. oldest is six, and she goes to church with her aunt and uncle. We don't, we don't attend church, my wife and I, but she goes with her aunt and uncle, and I think it's good that she does. But now that she's getting older, I'm thinking to myself, there are things that I want to do, if, if she's interested and open to it, to tell her what I think about God, because she's learning about it at church. And I don't agree 100% with what she's learning. I don't want to keep her from learning it. I want her to be exposed, but I also want to share with her what I think. Hmm. And uh, I don't know when is appropriate to do it and how much I can lay on her at one time. But one of the things I I want to be able to do, and I've been thinking about this. So so one of the examples, I don't know exactly how to say this. I want to tell my daughter that there are ways that she can understand God as being present, as being real and being present and even being visible. If I could point to the sun and say, look, you see that up there? That's a portal. Just ask Swedenborg. On the other side of that sun is God. And you can look up and see it and, and, and have proof in your soul that that's a reality because I never had that. Nobody ever gave me that. It was just like, believe it because your parents believe it. There's no evidence of it. And, um, and, this is tied together with another thought that I that I was having where if I'm having like an internal dialogue with myself, if I'm having, if I'm worrying about something, if I'm planning for the future, if I'm asking questions, if I'm thinking through a problem, I have this dialogue in my head. Even if I'm just speaking, uh, you know, silently to myself, I always felt like there, like I wasn't alone, that there was somebody listening to me. Like yeah. I'm speaking in my soul. It's not, not, not audible. I'm just speaking words in my mind. And I always felt like it wasn't words into the darkness, that it was, there was somebody hearing those words. Mm. I, and I considered that it was me hearing those words. But as I get older and more mystical, I no longer f- see it quite like that. I see it as God listening to me, that, that, that absolute mind that's always there. You know, that voice of conscience, that's, that, that's the evidence also, a piece of evidence that God exists. And so I want to tell my daughter, like when you, fi- when you find yourself in situations where you're worried and you're anxious or when you're thinking through a problem, um, you know, and you're speaking to yourself, that that thing that's hearing you is, is evidence of God. Yep. That, that feeling you have that you're, be- that you're being heard, because I feel that way. I don't know if you do. Maybe it's just me. That's an that's an interesting thing, actually, because obviously I I was raised believing in God and you know a a, a transcendent separate God to me that I used to pray to, mm-hmm. and as time's gone on, I've kind of come around to this idea of non duality, where 
effectively, I am God, so are you, we all are. But here's the weird thing. I still find myself praying. Yeah. I, I tell you the time that I tell you the time that I often end up praying is when I have a nice meal. So growing up as a as a kid, whenever we had, you know, a nice meal, we'd say a prayer, you know, grace. We'd we'd pray to well, we used to pray to Jehovah and say, you know, thank you for this food that's been provided this day for us, you know? That that kind of gratitude. Even now I find myself doing that sometimes. Yeah. See, I don't think that's wrong, though. No, 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 I don't. It's um, just uh, on the Advaitist side of things, if you believe in non-duality and that you are God and that everything is God and, and basically there's no need to worship because effectively you're just worshipping or praying to yourself, <laughs> so there's no need to do it. Right. Um, it's often said within Advaita Vedanta that even though you don't need to worship, it's still good if you do. I, I agree. I think that something that gets lost if if you don't make a point to focus on it is gratitude. Mm, that's it. And in prayer to me has always been heavily oriented towards gratitude. It's, it's not it's not asking God for favors. It's thanking God for reality. And um, taking time out of your day to recognize that and acknowledge that is so important. And I think it does open up your spiritual life to be grateful. You know, you know what I think you're doing when you're actually doing that. So ju- just step back for a moment. You've got the ultimate God, Brahman source, this kind of singularity that fragments itself into all these other minds and, and, and creation in order to experience itself. Effectively, that's kind of what we're doing. You know, when we, when we, say, when we come to realise that our identity is, you know, that we are the ultimate, there is only one, this is it. When we then go and pray to a God, that's, we're effectively doing the same thing that God originally did. It's like we're, we're kind of um, fragmenting ourselves and putting a God out there in order to kind of give us this relationship so we're not just on our own. Mm. I think there's, there's always that sort of feeling, isn't there, that we're on our own and we need, we need something out there sort of watching over us and looking after us. Mm. So if we, if we imagine that God is fractal, which I think that psychedelic experience helps you to understand, uh, but also nature helps you to understand that uh, yeah. that that the the notion that God is fractured into multiplicity, if that's true, and we're a mirror of God, we would expect to see the same thing in us, yeah. and we do. That's it. That's you know, it. yeah, it, it happens with dissociation, but it also happens with um, just maturity. It's like when you become a different person, and that happens to you all the time. You know, you weren't this. You're not the same person after a certain experience than you once were. What happened? What happened to the old you? You know, you still kind of are that old you, but you're not. You fractured. Now you're more than one. Now you're more than one person in a in a strange way. Like a big loop again, isn't it? It's like God creates us, and then we create God. I think that's true. In fact, Daniel, I think that you put your finger on the pulse right there because I think that I think that whatever God is requires being. It requires material reality. It requires us. Yeah. So without without us, there is no God. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with that. It, go, it goes both ways, and 
people have a religious people have a very hard time with that. But here, but here's the way I would explain it: What is God without creation? Right. Well, this 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 in the Hindu belief, you've got Brahman with attributes and Brahman without attributes. Mm. So basically, Brahman with attributes is the the god that interacts with creation. But if you take that away, what you end up with is a source god, Brahman, that just is. It doesn't have any experiences. It doesn't have any real consciousness, nothing. It is exactly as you said there, that creation is necessary in order for source god to actually have an existence. On that basis, if Brahman is eternal or source is eternal, that would seem to indicate that creation is also eternal. Absolutely. There's there's no kind of it's just one big circle. Uh, that's what I think. That's what I that's what I believe. Yes, mm. the thought the thoughts pop and then they go. I, sh- I need to take I need to take more notes here, but yeah, absolutely. Um, so Swedenborg, clever Swedenborg. guy, the sun and light and all that sort of thing. I think I think you're, yeah. you're knocking on God's door when you start getting into into that sort of thing. I think absolutely. so. Absolutely. So I, before I jump into politics. I was, think, I was thinking about something and I actually did. In fact, I told you about this. I did a uh, episode of the podcast where I tried to do an interpretation, like a dream interpretation, mm. but of a, of a painting. And it's a Salvador Dali painting who is a very strange man and his art's very strange and, and psychedelic, you might say. It's full of images and it's interesting. So I decided I would try to do an interpretation, partly because I knew that how Dali interpreted it was available. You could you could read what he intended, and yep. so the question was, the way I interpreted the uh, image was really in no way like what the artist intended. And so the question I had was, when I look at an image and I, I get associations, thoughts, pictures, ideas come to my mind based on what I'm seeing, and then I can come up with what I think it means based upon all that you know unconscious stuff that's going on. To me, it's a valid meaning. My interpretation is valid, but it wasn't what the artist intended. So the question mm-hmm. is, is my interpretation valid or is it not? What do you think? It's completely uh, valid. Yeah. You just saying that reminds me, uh, I, I write poetry and songs and I've actually got a website called bipolarpoet.co.uk. I actually wrote a, a book of poetry called Into Minds. And uh, it it was kind of inspired by my experience of manic depression and what have you that was brought on by the trauma that I went through that I was speaking about earlier. But on the website, I've just got an introduction where it says, most likely as you read these poems, you will have a notion of what they mean, at least to you. It's not my desire to detract from your personal interpretation. The wonderful thing about a poem, or you could say a painting or song or anything is that it can have different meanings to different readers but then you've got obviously the official interpretation the intention of the creator and then so I went on to explain what my poems actually meant for me but I I think you're dead right I think everyone that approaches a work of art has their own idea of what it means and I think that is as real as what it meant to the actual person creating the art in the first place. Yeah, this is this is related to this the idea that if you hear a song or if you read a book or watch a movie that you love, that at yeah. different times in your life it means something different to you. Yeah, yeah, it can do. So I guess my broader question is: 
what does that say about meaning? It's like the artist it had specific intended meaning. And I, you put your own meaning into things, don't you? I just wonder what that means. Is it does that mean that meaning? Because I because I imagine God a lot of times to be something like um, you use the word God without attributes, and I like to think about God as being undifferentiated. So something similar. It's like hmm. God is all all at once. It's undifferentiated. It's something like potential. Yes. And I wonder I wonder if that's what meaning is like. And if that's if that makes it connected to God in some way that I haven't been able to understand, that like God, meaning is infinite. Like it it changes and morphs and becomes what it is specifically to you based upon your observation. Well, it, it, this is why, you know, everybody has their outlook on life, particularly when it comes to spirituality and religion. Who are we to say that the way that they view God is any less value than the way that we view God. I'm a very big believer in that. You know, it's uh, it's very easy with religion and I suppose with politics as well, which we'll come on to in a bit. It's very easy with things like this to take a very definite stand and say, this is the absolute truth. This This is what, you know, this is right, this is wrong, this is what it means, and everybody else is wrong. But I, I, I don't tend to think that now. I, I, I seem to think, you know, as everybody's view on whatever it is, art, religion, politics, spirituality, to that person, it, it's real and it has meaning. It definitely seems to. And I, I, I don't know. These are the thoughts. These are the thoughts that I wanted to bounce off you, man. I just feel like, uh, our own realities, haven't we? Exactly right. Strange, isn't it? Hmm. We have our own realities and yet we exist in the same reality. There's, there's always, when I bump into paradoxes like that, I always raise my eyebrow. I think that it's a sign. Like whenever I bump into a paradox of that kind, I think it's a sign that I'm on to something. But whatever I'm on to is not something that can be understood. It's something beyond understanding. Something like what you experience in a psychedelic vision. Yep. It's supremely meaningful and beyond comprehension at the same time. A paradox. God is a paradox. We're God all a paradox. paradox. <laughs> I'm definitely a paradox. Uh, sometimes I think to myself, I'm the biggest contradiction going. I've I've got this this kind of thing where I can express an opinion, and then the next day I'll express another opinion that means you know just as much as the previous opinion to me, mm. and they're completely opposites. <laughs> and people can't get their head around. It's like, hang on, you said this yesterday. Yep. It's like, mm, yeah, I believe <laughs> yeah. that. I also believe this. Yeah, yeah. You, you know how I answer that question, Daniel? I say, I said what I said. I said what I said, and now I think this. I'm, a, I'm in a constant state of flux with my beliefs and thoughts. You know, sometimes I'll be quoting Hindu philosophy. Another time I'll be talking about God. Another time I'll be kind of talking about, you know, the Bible, or then I'm talking about the Upanishads. Yeah, you and me both, I do the same they're not, thing. They're not mutually exclusive, are they? No. Something else that just recurred to me. This was what I wanted to bring up earlier. We were talking about um, God fracturing into multiplicity, so one mm-hmm. thing becoming many, and you know how we become new people. Like psychologically, we become new people at different points in our life. We're different from what's, what what we once were. We have these transformative experiences. And uh, one of the things, one of the examples I wanted to bring up, and we may have talked about this before, but there's a philosopher named Hegel, a German philosopher named mm-hmm. Hegel, who talks about consciousness. 
in a weird way, in an ontological way, a lot like I do, where he talks about consciousness and God very much similarly. And he says that we find ourselves, I, I know I told you this before, he said we find ourselves consciousness within consciousness. That we that he, it says we stand before ourselves as another consciousness. That's what that's how he says it, and what he means, I think, is that people people have a dual perspective. Hmm. We we one perspective we're a subject, you know, we're the person behind our eyes seeing the world. In another context, we're an object, just like any other object. Just like I look at you, I yep. see Daniel as an object in the world. I'm like that. I'm an object in the world. But we're the only object that gets to be a subject too. Every other object is just an object. So we have these two yeah. perspectives of ourselves. Whole thing about thinking about thinking, isn't it? Thinking about thinking, yes. Mm. And then you see that. Then you see that feedback, right? Thinking about thinking, consciousness within consciousness, a pattern within a pattern. Then what we're describing is feedback, and yeah. feedback creates infinity. You know that you do audio audio visual. Feedback creates infinity. And that's what we see in nature. That that that's that fractal thing that keeps coming up. The fact that it keeps coming up makes me believe it more and more and more. Yep. There's something. There's something to that. Yep, I agree. Definitely agree with that. All right. So here's the political question I have for you. Oh. And I'm very interested. If you can talk openly about it. If you, if not, I completely understand because this is controversial. In in the United States. I've talked about this before. I'm just going to say in general, in the United States, people are more or less thrown into two categories, black people and white people. And there are others, but these are the two broad generalizations that you hear all the time. And mm-hmm. in our country, in this country, we aren't connected to our history. And I don't know if you guys are in Europe more. I imagine you must be because the the, the black folks in the United States, many of them have a history of... Um, that, that goes back to the slave trade. And so the family history gets literally demolished at, at you know, you, you just have no connection to your origins. And because there's such a, a strong emphasis in the early days of the United States to become American, to be, mm. um, what's the word they used? Uh, assimilate, right? You had these immigrants who come over and they're like from, from Ireland or they're from Italy or wherever they're from. And they, they want their kids to learn English. And many of those families wouldn't even teach their kids to speak Italian or, or Gaelic. They wouldn't teach them that because they wanted them to fit in. They wanted them to have a new life in, in America and, and to fit in and all that. It was important to them. So for that reason, the people that today get considered to be white, we have, all, we have no connection really to what that means. So we have this imposition culturally where if you're, if you're of European origin, you're white and you're all the same. And if your skin is darker than a certain hue, guess what? You're black and you go into a certain category. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what cultural mm-hmm. differences exist. And I always found that to be really sad. Yeah. The, the, the reason I want to ask you about this is because it, right now there's this cultural debate that's going on. And I, I'm sure it's going on in the UK as well. But here it's going on where racism has just kicked up and become this huge topic. Discriminate. It's everywhere you look. I think that is vastly overplayed. I think that is in my day-to-day life, almost completely untrue. I I don't, I don't experience any prejudice or racism in my day-to-day life ever. And yet, and yet you hear it on, on the news constantly that this is a problem. And so this is all connected to this idea of diversity. 
And uh, one of the things that is being said in the United States is that white people don't contribute to cultural diversity. That in order for you to, to have brownie points for being diverse, white people simply don't count in the equation. What you need is minority groups. You need um, various minority groups. And that's how you get diversity. We as white people don't contribute to it. Hmm. Another thing that's said is that black people can't be racist because white people are in power and you can only be racist against people um, if you are uh, marginalized or, or, or the, uh, racism only exists if you're marginalized. If you're in the majority, then nobody can be racist against you. Nobody can be prejudicial against you. It, it, that doesn't make sense. As far as I'm concerned, this is this is nonsense. This is, a uh, you know. This isn't the definition of any of those words. This is a whole strange social thing that's happening. But the question is, do white people contribute to cultural diversity? How would that question even sound to you as, as, as an Englishman? That's interesting. I, th- this is only my experience of diversity and racism and so forth. Obviously, I'm, I am a white guy. I, I can't speak from, you know, for, for black people and uh, People of other other races and and so forth, but my my observation of the UK when it comes to racism and and so on, I think it does exist. Racism does exist, but I don't think it's anything like it is in the in the states. I, I really don't. I mean, we've we've now got a Christian king, a Hindu prime minister, <laughs> and a Muslim mayor of London. Mm. and most reasonable folks are absolutely fine with that. They like the diversity. Whether or not, I, I get where you're coming from, you know, like there, there's always this sort of thing where you know, the minority groups need to sort of get more of a more of a say and more, more exposure and more representation and so forth. Do white people need that? Probably not because, you know, in the UK it is still predominantly white. Right. You know, but there are a huge amount of people from other other cultures. I mean, where I live in Rotherham, if I just walk along the the main street, there's Indians, Muslims, uh, Jews, Polish. Uh, they're all running their own little shops with their own yeah. sort of uh, you know cultural foods and all this sort of thing. Right, and they they all I mean they do speak English, uh, but they all speak their own languages as well. It's a real mm. mishmash, you know. Mm. I, I don't I don't think in the UK as a whole it's such a big deal as it is in the United States. I think the UK is a lot more accepting of people of different different backgrounds, and we we kind of I, I, I know sort of at one point there was you know we were a um, imperialism and all the rest of it and the slave trade right. and all that you know just I know that existed in the past, but certainly in more recent history, you know particularly from the time of the war and so forth, there's been, particularly the Second World War, there's been an awful lot of um, acceptance of people of other other nations, you know. Well, I mean, we've, we've, we've accepted so many people into our country with all their different backgrounds and everything, yep. you know, to the point where it was actually becoming a problem. We <laughs> were running out of room. I'm going to ask you a little bit more of a sensitive question, uh, but tell me, what, you don't have to, but let, let me ask you this question. Hmm, for it. Well, I think that they're like your um, opinion of what race relations are like in America is very likely impacted by what you see in the media, mm. which my, yes. my personal my personal experience has been. That's largely bullshit, mostly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, in the big cities, um, there's problems that people point to and say systemic racism, and there's probably good arguments uh, for various reasons that you can make. But in but in the suburbs, in the country, and most of across the, this country, race relations aren't bad. Things think people are people are very yeah, accepting. People enjoy multiculturalism, like, you know, the way you described it with the shops and the food and all that. Um, you know, like one of my favorite restaurants is this little Ethiopian restaurant, you know, back home. Mm-hmm. It's um, I think it's probably more like what you experience in the UK than than it seems. But one of the things I noticed in my lifetime is that um, interracial marriage that was still a bit of a bumpy thing. It's not so much anymore, but when I was younger, it, it was still a little bit, I didn't see a lot of it. And when I did, there was, there was tension surrounding that. Do you see that in the UK very much? Is, is a interracial uh, marriage common? It's very common. Okay. Yeah, I would say it's, it's very common. I've got to be careful here because there may be ones from sort of minority groups that are saying, you know, oh, Dan doesn't get it, you know, because he, he's not, experiencing what we're experiencing right that, that yep. may be the case but from yep. where i'm stood um see see the other thing you've got to take into account just harping on about this i was a jehovah's witness in the past and jehovah's witnesses is a global they, they refer to themselves as a global brotherhood and racism is not a thing within jehovah's witnesses sure you know Same in Islam. It's same in Islam, you know. Now, that may not be representative of real life out there. There may well be racism that I'm – I mean, there's always there's always going to be some idiot that, you know, talk, <laughs> says things like, you know, oh, coming over here and, you know, all the rest of it. You, you've even right. got a political party in the UK, the uh, British Nationalist Party. Oh, okay. EMP, <laughs> you know? Um, very, very anti anybody that's not white and British. Mm. Um, but I think most reasonable folks basically think the BNP are nuts. <laughs> why why so should we- colour and culture make any difference at all? I was, I was just watching uh, PM's Question Time the other day. And, uh, you know, we, we've got this new <laughs> – we, we had uh, – the Queen died just before uh, – we had Boris Johnson, didn't we? Yes. As a prime minister, he blew it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Queen appointed Liz Truss. Mm-hmm. She only lasted 45 days. <laughs> <laughs> the Queen died. And uh, now we've got a Hindu, uh, Rishi Sunak. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. He, he's now prime minister. So we've had like uh, th- three, three prime ministers in just over a month. It's very strange. Yeah. It's very strange. But it's, uh, I was just watching the PM's question times and the amount of black people and Asian people and Muslims and Christians and in, in the actual House of Commons is pretty well represented, I think. Yeah. Mm. So that's good. Um, here, let me show you this. You see this little, this little booty, this little shoe? Mm. It's probably it looks like something that might be a Native American shoe, is it? It does, doesn't it? It's it's from Finland. It's made of reindeer hide. It's a oh. traditional it's a traditional <laughs> shoe that my my wife's family is from Finland and Sweden, and uh, her her uh, grandfather um, he wore those when he was a kid. My my wife's father wore them when he was a kid. My wife wore them when she was a, when she was a kid. And now I just sort of keep them in my office. But um, the reason I bring them up is because well, exactly what you brought up. You see those shoes and you think 
are is are they Native American shoes? What's going on? Are they like from Siberia? What what is this? Um, that's kind of the point that I was making when when in this country anyway, when the idea that white people don't contribute to cultural diversity, that we're just this blank stamp, we're just we're, we we don't we don't have anything to offer or bring anything to the table. I look at things like this that's completely distant from us in the United States. The idea that white people ever wore a shoe like this is 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 the most distant thing from our minds. Um, and I imagine that maybe it's not like that in the UK. And I'll tell you what I mean. In the United States, the government wants you to fill out a form. They're going to ask you to check your race on the form, which, by mm. the way, I, I think is terrible. I always struggle with that. When there's a form and it says, how, how do you identify? And I have to, I have to tick white British male. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You've got somebody who, who immigrates from um, Ireland during the potato famine. They come mm. over to the United States. They have a Gaelic, Gaelic background um, or Celtic, Celtic background. They can speak, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever the languages are, Gaelic language plus English. They have red hair and freckles. They come over here. They they have a very specific heritage, um, a very specific religious heritage, cultural heritage, genetic heritage, language, all that. Then somebody immigrates from this, from Sicily, and they're darker complected. They have a whole separate tradition of religious history and social history, and you know with the languages they speak. They they come over to the United States, and both of them are filling out this form, and then you say, "I'm white." I'm white. And my point is mm. those, those people bring a tremendously different scope of diversity to the table. And yeah. The white bit is almost irrelevant, isn't it? It seems like it. Mm. And, and even, even worse, you can look at, you can look at people like, I don't know, maybe the Amish in the United States. They're a very, very, very low percentage of the population. They're a minority group by anybody's estimation. Or you look at people like the Basque people in Spain that live in the mountains. They don't, they they literally don't belong to the um, Indo-European family tree that the rest of Europe belongs to. They're they're like an ancient people that survived in the mountains. They, their culture is so deep and different from ours. Even their language doesn't even connect to the Indo-European language group. That's a minority group with a very specific cultural heritage that we could benefit from. Mm. But in this country, they're white, and it's gone. It's yeah. gone. And when you brought up earlier the shops and you say you go down, you go down to the shops and you, and you have the Indian restaurant and you have the um, you know, Thai restaurant and you have the Polish restaurant. Hmm. Even in the United States, the Polish restaurant almost doesn't exist. Because remember, we're, we're all white. So w- European tradition here is almost whitewashed. And, and the same thing with African tradition. It's just as egregious. If you're somebody who's who's from East Africa and you're a Maasai, you know, your lineage is Maasai people. When those people, those people drink milk and blood from the cows that they herd around and that's their culture. Their culture is to subsist off these cows and, 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 uh, this nomadic lifestyle, you know, that's so different from a San Bushman or from a West African tribesman for somebody from the Congo or somebody from Morocco or Egypt. It's so different, but in this country, they're black. And it all goes away. Yeah, uh, I, there, there is a tendency to want to put people in boxes. There is. And the boxes don't always <laughs> describe who you are. <laughs> I mean, I, I abs- I, I'm, I'm someone who absolutely loves diversity, absolutely love it. 
And I, yeah. th- I think, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually. You know, some, sometimes we can think of, you know, in the UK, we might say, oh, black people are a minority. M- may- maybe here, maybe they are in certain areas, but then white people are a minority in other places. I- I'd stand like, like a sore thumb. You know? <laughs> so it's, it, it just strikes me as silly, really petty that people draw these sort of lines where they try to, you know, at the end of the day, we are all, all human. I, I had a friend in, uh, in middle school who visited Germany. I would love to go. My, my mother's family's from Germany. Uh, he, he visited Germany and he came back and he told me, I was like, well, what was it like? Now, bear in mind, we're like 12 or 13 years old. I was like, what was it like in Germany? He was like, look, I was the tallest person in the whole country. <laughs> I was the tallest person and all of the women were beautiful. All of them were beautiful. Yeah. That's what he told me. So that's, that's Germany as far as he's concerned. Don't you find as well, um, without stereotyping, that different cultures, different, different races have their, their own kind of unique sort of peculiarities? You know, I know people stereotype them, but you know, generally speaking, most Polish people I've met are lovely people. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I mean this in the nicest possible way. The few German people I've ever met are very, um, very blunt, very mm. straight. And for a mm. British person, it comes across as rude. Harsh, yeah. Mm. And you have to say, well, no, they're not being rude. That's their culture, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, but then I, I don't really know how Brits come across. How do Brits come across to other people? Yeah. Are we laid back? Do we? I, I know we're, we're constantly running ourselves down and saying how rubbish we are. <laughs> That's funny, Um it's funny because I'll tell you what, listen, like it may be different in different parts of the, of the United States. Um, I live, you might just call it this, the Midwest. Uh, mm. So I have a certain, I have a certain opinion, but when it comes to British people, I think the stereotypes that come to mind are that you're very polite. So that, that's like <laughs> yeah. one of the first things that comes to mind. You're very polite. Um, I think we generally don't like to cause a fuss. Yes. So we're very agreeable. Agreeable. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, industrious too, I would say, only because historically when an American thinks about the British, we think about the East India Trading Company. We think about uh, the colonies. We think about, um, you know, the impact that you had, uh, your naval success and with trade. You know, to mm-hmm. me, I think the transformation of England um, to, to be to be what it is today, uh, that is the model for the United States in more, more ways than one. So I think that we feel like brothers with the British in, in many ways. Um, like I remember when, um, when Obama was elected the first time, uh, there was a bust of Winston Churchill. I don't know if you remember this story. That was a gift mm. from the British. And, or, or, I think it was a gift. Yeah. and Obama sent the bust back to England. And there's a, a certain portion of the population, mostly they were conservatives at the time because Obama was a Democrat. We, we were like, why would you, what a disgraceful and disrespectful thing to do? Why would you do that? Um, so, so in some ways we look at our relationship with England and with a, 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 a English figure like Churchill, almost like he's one of our own. I don't know. If, it's probably not the same with you. It's probably not the same with the British. What? Cause, cause I imagine most of Europe thinks that Americans are uh, dumb and fat and brutish. And, um, you know, that's basically it, that we're, yeah, we're a bunch yeah, of racists. Kind of stereo- stereotypes, isn't it? Yeah. All, you're all racist and all you ever eat is burgers. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. Ridiculous. I mean, I, I went to, I spent a bit of time in New York a few years back and mm. just absolutely lovely people. 
so I've never many been. Nice, so many nice people. They're just so polite and helpful and um, really fascinated with the British accent. Every every time I open their mouth, <laughs> oh, oh, you're a Brit. Can you say? And then they'd like they'd ask me to say things. You know, like hello. So that, that's another thing. So you asked me about imp- first impressions or stereotypes. That's yeah. another thing that, that is common. Um, we imagine the British are very intelligent in general. <laughs> and, it, and it has to do, it has to do with your accent because in, oh, okay. this, this must be, this must be just uh, like a pop culture Hollywood thing. But when you have somebody with a British accent in an American movie, it's usually a sage like mm. figure. It's a wise. They normally, figure. they normally sort of speak. Hello. I, I'm British. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> we don't talk like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, hip hip, cheerio. Um, hip, hip, cheerio. Jolly good, <laughs> jolly good fellow. <laughs> yeah. So I. So I. Yeah. Like that's another thing that fascinates me is um. What we uh, we may have talked a bit about this before because I know you had that uh, one lady on your podcast who was from Jersey, from New Jersey, and I, I was mm. telling you and just in direct messages the difference between the way I speak and the way she speaks. Mm. Did you notice it? Yes. So in the UK, um, but this is beyond me. I don't know, but I, it seems to me like um, the North has a certain accent. The, the yes. you know, uh, the North has a certain accent. Um, London has a certain accent. And that, that there is, there is a, like um, a more, uh, I don't know. I would, I would say a Royal sort of a fancy um, way of speaking that, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Like the the person that comes to mind is um, uh, is an actor whose name I can't remember. You ever see the movie The Last Samurai? Oh yeah. There's a, Br- a British fella in there. He was also in Harry Potter. He was the uh, um, oh jeez, I'm blanking on the name. It, it, it point is, how about uh, what's that? Um, oh man, names are really really difficult for me to come up with on the spot. Point is that there is a uh, affected sort of a, a British accent to that to me sounds like um, aristocratic type of an accent, you might say. We've got what we call received pronunciation, which is kind of my accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's very popular around London, it's very popular around sort of Cambridge, Oxford, those sort of areas. Um, but then, then you've got like your Cockneys, mm. is hello, Gab, how you doing? It's all good. <laughs> Now I used to be that way. That, that's really? how I spoke. Absolutely. And then I moved from uh, southeast London up up north, where everyone speaks. You know, very. Um, I, I can't even do the accent, but kind of Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire. Yorkshire, yeah, yeah. And I, I think what happened was my Cockney accent sort of fell to, fell to one side. But it's mm. it's really funny if you listen to those podcasts where me and Matthew were speaking the other day. Oh, uh, you went back into it. Did you notice? Yeah, if you listen back to those straight away, I'm like, hello, how you doing? <laughs> it's so strange. What, what about so the strange. R? What about the R rolling? You don't do any of that. Uh, yeah. No, I don't, I don't do that. It, received pronunciation is very, very straight, very bland, very, it's almost you can't quite, place where the person's from and that's kind kind of what i've it, fallen into but then you've got you've got others you know that uh down sort of cornwall way you know who are you know mm. um <laughs> yes. Are. yes i know where you're from um <laughs> so you're, you're scottish, scottish you know 
Yep. So the way you're the way you're describing the like the London accent, we we call mm-hmm. that non-regional. So it's like uh, the it? way the yeah, way you would hear somebody in New York speak mm-hmm. is very much like they would speak in California. Yeah. I, I don't think that's much different from the way I speak, but people will point out things that mm-hmm. I say that are that sound a little off. Like sometimes I'll I'll say uh, water instead of water. Mm-hmm. Water. Ah, see. Water. A water. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> That's another thing is um, when you pronounce the ER sound, uh, like mm. the R, the hard R that is very common in, in American English, it seems like it's hit or miss in, it, with British English. Um, mm. Like, uh, well, Harry Potter is a big cultural phenomenon. It's Potter. It's not Potter. It's not Potter, Potter but it is, right? Potter. I mean, yeah, so I would say Harry Potter. Harry, like there's Harry no Potter. H. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. In, my, in my mind, in my mind, I'm saying the H. Harry Potter. There is a, there is a certain type of English accent mm. that I can't point to that drops the H, and oh. the ER sounds like an A, and it's yeah. very common, right? right. The so ER sounds like an A. Up, we'd say Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Yeah. Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, right. you know, what's funny Harry is that Potter. we have that here. We have that here still. On the East Coast, if you go back to the original colonies, if you go to if you go to Boston, hmm. they park the car at the Harvard Yard. Oh, they park, they park the car at the Harvard Yard. Not the car. That's how, that's the how they yard. speak. But I park the car at the Harvard Yard. You know what I mean? I would park the car at the Harvard Yard. And once upon a time, I parked the car at the Harvard Yard. <laughs> at the Harvard Yard, I like. I like <laughs> I it. I love it. I love it too. Oh, dear. Um, another thing that I that I learned um, in I probably like right, right around late high school time. This is just like another one of those. Maybe I should be embarrassed as an American to say this, but you get the idea. Mm. I didn't understand that calling that calling you English if you were from Scotland was offensive. Oh, <laughs> yes. right, because to me, Great Great Britain is England. That, that you know what I mean? Like that, that's almost that. That's how that's how we generalize it, right? It's like the British conquered you. You, you used to be a pick, and you used to be you know a Celt, but now but now you're now you you come under the umbrella of the of the monarchy of England. You belong to. You're part of the English crown, right? That's how we see it. So to call somebody who's from Wales even yeah. English, I, well, I had no idea. England, Scotland and Ireland. So originally, Great Britain was just. Um, Scotland and England, and then Wales. Oh, Wales yeah. came into it, and then uh, even later we got uh, Ireland came in. But we we don't we don't refer to Ireland as Great Britain. We refer to Great Britain is Wales, England, and Scotland. See, that's the United news to me. Kingdom includes Ireland. Ah, that's the distinction. I see. Yeah. But it, well, and only part of Ireland, just Northern Ireland. Not just Northern, Northern Ireland. Northern yeah. Ireland is obviously its own, own thing still. But at one point, the whole of Ireland was associated with Great Britain. But now it's um, it's not. Do, do you find it? Do you find it strange that the, that the term United Kingdom and Great Britain to me are synonyms? You think they're the same? Yeah. No. Then yeah. I, w- I would say that that is a commonplace. Um, that would be a commonplace like error that we would make here. Yeah, and no, Great Britain's only the uh, the mainland. Interesting. See, I'm learning something. Yeah, Scotland, England, uh, Scotland, England, and Wales. I'm just going to check, make sure I've got that right. Great Britain, because I don't want to be getting this wrong. So, Great Britain is the official collective name of England, Scotland, and Wales. 
It does not include Northern Ireland and should never be used interchangeably with the UK. Interesting. <laughs> so, it, it, so we yeah. were talking about racism earlier, and I want to ask you this question too. Between Scots and Irish and Welsh and Cornishmen and Englishmen, mm-hmm. do you have that, that same, I mean, I, there must be stereotypes, but do you have that kind of like discrimination? What's that yeah, like? There is a bit, there, there is a bit on that. Yeah. Okay. Well, be, be more specific. What, what do you, what are the, well, uh, I think the Scots hate the English. <laughs> uh, oh, that might be, that might be an overkill, but the, um, the, the, the Scottish are very much about wanting their, their independence. A lot of them. Not all. Oh yeah. They want their independence from, you know, and I mean, they've, they've even got their own parliament now, haven't they? Oh, uh, the Scottish parliament. But obviously, you know, still a lot of stuff still comes up from London up. I think the general sort of thought is that Scotland is is such a culturally rich with history and it, it's its own people, but it, it literally is going into another country when you when you go to Scotland and you can feel it. You can feel it. It's completely different. Do they do they so my historical knowledge is so sparse so forgive me but i'm aware that the roman empire never expanded beyond hadrian's wall and that the Mm -hmm. line between northern england and scotland is basically hadrian's wall so correct me if i'm wrong but do the scottish people have pride to this day that they were never conquered like the british i think so yeah i've spent a lot of time up in scotland and i love it that that's kind of where i'd like to end up eventually living Mm. in scotland but uh yeah, you, you can you can literally feel as you as you leave England and you go over that border, it, you're in another world. Hmm. Are <laughs> yeah. they like are, are the Scots like tough guys? Is that the general? I think that generally comes across that they're quite tough. Um, yeah. But again, I think a lot of that goes back to accents again, doesn't it? You know, the Scottish yeah. accent is quite quite harsh sometimes, and I think you know sometimes people hear that as an Englishman, you hear the the Scots accent sounds harsh. So mm. straight away you think, oh, they're quite harsh people. They're not. They're lovely, lovely people. Mm. Well, there, there are um, instances where you'll have British people speaking in a movie or even uh, even mm. on TV where they're speaking English and they're subtitles because because I can't <laughs> understand you. Yeah. That's great. And, you, and then you, most of the telly that we watch in the UK is American. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're well into our crime dramas, you know, and, uh, you know, CSI and Chicago Fire. and Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'm a fan yeah. of British television here. So I watch several BBC shows, mostly because I like hearing the accents, you know? Hmm. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not dominated by British TV, but I like it. I grew up with, uh, you know, Monty Python and, and oh, yeah. cer- certain things, John you know, please, that got me yeah. into it. Have you ever seen the um, Only Fools and Horses? No. Uh-uh. Well, you must watch Only Fools and Horses. All right, I'm writing it down. Oh, so good. David Jason as Del Boy. <laughs> You'll love it. How much TV do you watch? I actually do watch quite a lot of TV. Do you watch yeah, it at the end of the day when you're relaxing and you're trying to, you know, unwind? Yeah, I love I love watching TV movies. Do, do you yeah. prefer movies or these long series that that were uh, either either both? So if you haven't if you haven't uh, well, this is maybe this is a silly question, but you've got all the same 
all the same streaming services that we have available in the United States, right? Yep. Netflix. Have you, Prime. Yep. Yeah. Have you, um, have you watched Freud on Netflix? No. It's a show called Freud. If it's not gone, I would recommend that you put it on your list. It's, uh, it's about Sigmund Freud and it's in, it's in German. So you have to read the subtitles, but as far as I'm concerned, it's worth it. It's a very, very, very good. And then there's one called mind hunters that you should put on the list also. Oh, I've, seen, I've seen that, but I've not, oh, I've yeah. not looked at it yet. Good. Is it good? It's good. It, it's about the early days of the uh, FBI when they were tr- when they were trying to, for the first time, um, figure out serial killers because we were seeing serial killers in the '60s and '70s. They they were trying to get a task force together to figure out how to deal with serial killers, and it's really interesting. Really interesting, man. You've seen um, it's it's based on a book, uh, the men who stare at goats. I remember it, but I don't. I don't think I saw it. I remember what it was about, though. Yeah, it was a uh, John Ronson, um, British writer, journalist. John Ronson wrote a book about um, it was it was basically about how the American government were trying to use mind control. <laughs> Just coming back to minds again to kill yes. kill people with the power of thought. Yep. And, uh, and, they literally, and yeah, they're literally like sort of got a goat and they're just sort of staring at it for yeah. hours trying to kill it. <laughs> and eventually yep. I think the goat kills over. But it's probably just due to old age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They did all kinds of crazy stuff. They did uh, a yeah. remote viewing. They were remote trying to viewing. get, yeah, yeah, trying to get these people to tell them where, like, where, where did the Soviets have their missiles, you know, and they're, we're just going to bring some psychics together to figure out where they are. Some weird stuff, man. Love it. <laughs> it's right, I'm, I'm going to say uh, I'm going to say goodbye to all our listeners. Thank goodbye you, Darren, listeners. for having me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again. Dropping again soon. Bye for now.